Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Chapter 16 of The Fortieth Door. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Fortieth Door by Mary Hastings Bradley. Chapter 16 out of the darkness. There was no measure of time for Ryder in that walled coffin of death. The seconds seemed hours, the minutes ages. He drew quick, short breaths, as if economizing the air that was so soon to fail him. He tugged at his bonds till the veins rose on his forehead, but the silk held, and the confines of the prison permitted him no room for struggle. Then he leaned forward to press with all his might upon the bricks before him. He grunted, he sweated with the agony of his exertions, but not a brick was stirred, not a crack was made in the mortar that gripped them tighter every instant. He died a thousand deaths in the horror that invaded him then. Already he felt strangling, and the painful pumping of his heart seemed the beginning of the end. Cold sweat stood out all over him. It ran down his face in trickling streams, and his body was drenched with that clammy dew of fear. He tried to count the minutes— the hours, to estimate how long he would hold out. And then he heard his own voice, saying very distinctly and clearly and dispassionately, This thing is absurd. It was absurd. It was idiotic. It was utterly irrational. It was an impossible end for an able-bodied young American, an excavator of no mean attainments, a young scholar and explorer of twentieth-century science, a sane, modern, harmless young man, to die immured in the ancient walls of a Turkish palace, because he had invaded a marriage reception and intervened between man and wife. Violent death in any form must always appear absurd to the young and energetic, but the fantastic horror of his death removed it definitely from any realm of possibility. The thing simply could not happen. He thought of the amazement and the incredulity of his friends. Dangers in plenty they had warned him against, to his youthful amusement sandstorms and chills and raw fruit and unboiled waters but they had not warned him against veiled women and the resentments of outraged lords and masters he thought of his mother's consternation and dismay he thought of his father's stern amazement what an awful jolt it would give them he reflected with an irrational tickling of young humour but no it would not they would never know not a word of this fate would percolate into the world without not a comment upon his true end would enliven the daily columns of the East Middleton Monitor. Never would it regret the tragic and romantic interment of a young native son of talent, buried alive by a revengeful general of the Sultan. He amused himself by writing the paragraph that would never be written. Then he told himself that he was light-headed and hysterical, and that he had better wonder what would actually be written, what explanation would be found. A desert storm, perhaps, or some accident. McLean would poke about, but for all McLean knew he might be on his way back to camp that very moment, and sometimes he went by sailing canoe and a rented horse, and sometimes by the accredited steamer and a camel, and sometimes by tram or train to the nearest station. Even McLean's mind and McLean's copse 
wouldn't make much of all the alternatives that his unsettled habits had afforded. Was there any possibility of his being traced, of any rescue reaching him? He thought hard and long upon his last free moments. Jinny Jeffreys knew that he was in the palace, and Jinny had been reiteratedly warned about the danger of betraying that knowledge. It would take some little time for alarm before Jinny said anything, and it would take a little time for Jinny to begin to worry. He had not been so instant in attendance upon Jinny of late, for all their residence in the same hotel, that she would suspect that his absence of twenty-four hours was due to actual incarceration. His cursed passion for freedom in which to ramble up and down that deserted lane without Tufik Pasha's garden, his inane love of solitary mooning. No, Jinny would not soon wonder about him. She had not expected to see him that evening anyway. He had muttered something to her about a man and an engagement. She would rather look to see him the next day and talk about their adventure. But still she would feel no more than pique at his absence. Positive worry would not develop until later. Besides, all the revelations that Jinny could make would do no good. Jinny could only report that he had maintained a disguise at a wedding reception, and talked a few moments, apparently undetected, to a bride. Hamdi Bey and Hamdi's eunuchs would be blandly ignorant of such a scandal. What his disappearance would indicate would be some further frolic on his part, some tempting of a later providence before he had abandoned his disguise. If he were discovered, for instance, in some of those native quarters behind a woman's veil. Decidedly, the only effect of Jinny's revelations would be an unsavory cloud upon his character. There was no hope to be looked for. And yet he could not believe it. There were moments when the black terror mastered him, but involuntarily his young strength shook it off. He could not believe in its reality. He could not believe that he was actually here, bricked and bound, in this infernal coffin but indisputably the evidence was in favor of belief. Only to believe was to feel again that horror. He tried to tell himself that it didn't matter. One had to die sometime. Everybody did. One might as well go out young and strong and still interested in life. But that was remarkably cold comfort. He didn't want to go out at all. He didn't want to die, not for fifty or sixty years yet. And of all the ways of dying, he wanted least to smother and choke and stifle like a rat walled in its hole in the wall. He recalled with peculiar pain a woodchuck that he had penned up as a boy, and he hoped with extraordinary passion that the poor beast had made another hole. Never again, he resolved, would he pen up a living creature, never again, if only again he could see the light of day and breathe the free air. He thought of Amy, and when he thought of her his heart seemed to turn to water, useless to repeat to himself now those old reminders that he had seen her so little, known her so slightly. Useless to measure that strange feeling that drew him by any artifice of time and acquaintance. She was a me. She was enchantment and delight. She was appeal and tenderness. She was blind longing and mystery. She was beauty and desire. Even to think of her now, in the infernal horror of this cramping grave, was to feel his heart quicken and his blood grow hot in a helpless passion of dread and fear. She was alone there, helpless with that madman. He tried to tell himself that she was not wholly helpless, that she had wit and spirit and courage, and that somehow she would manage to quell the storm. She might persuade Hamdi to their story, make him remember that this was the twentieth century, wherein one does not go about immuring inconvenient trespassers as in the earlier days of the mad Khedive. 
years which had probably formed the general's impulses, but in telling himself this there was no comfort for the thought of the price that Amy would have to pay. It was pleasanter to pretend that Hamdi was really only joking, in a shockingly exaggerated, practical way, and that presently, when the suitable time had elapsed, he would present himself, smiling, to end the ghastly, antiquated jest. For some time he continued to tell himself that, and then suddenly he told himself that the time for intervention had surely come. It was very hard to breathe. The next minute he was assuring himself that this was merely some devil's trick of his apprehensive imagination. There must be a great deal of air left. But he was distressingly ignorant of the contents of air, and his calculations were lamentably unsupported by any sound basis of fact. Mistake not to have gone in for chemistry and physics. A chap who'd done time in those subjects wouldn't now be rocking with suspense. He'd comfortably and satisfactorily know just how many hours, minutes, and seconds were allotted before his finish, and he could think his thoughts accordingly. Undoubtedly, so he insisted to himself, there was air enough here to last him till morning. This gasping stuff was all imagination. He wanted to keep cool and quiet, but for all his reassurance there was something a little queer with his lungs and his heart was lurching sickeningly in his side like a runaway ship's engine. And then he heard his own voice repeating very tonelessly, "'Oh, God! Oh, God!' And the horror of it all came blackly over him, and a feeling of profound and awful sickness. It was a sound, the faintest scraping and knocking without that wall. It went through him like an electric current, and then a roar burst from him that fairly split his ears, the reaction of his quivered nerves and racking fears of his uncertainties, his tightening terrors. But now nothing. He could not hear a thing. A delusion? A torture of his final hours? No, it came again. More definitely now, a little grinding and scraping. Faster and faster, a muffled driving thud. A jubilant reassurance sang gaily through him. He had expected this. This was what he had predicted. Hamdi was no foul friend. He was a devilish, uncomfortable customer with antiquated notions of revenge, but now he had shot his wad and was going to undo his tricks. Ryder braced himself to present a carefree jauntiness, an air somewhat difficult to assume when one is trussed like a spitted bird in a hot coffin space, with hair falling dankly over a steaming brow, with a collar like a string, and an indescribable pallor beneath the bronze of one's face. Something stirred. One end of a brick was driven in against his chest. Then he felt the blind working of some tool that caught it and worried it free. It seemed to him that through the dark aperture a current of cold, delicious air came rushing in about him. The blows sounded against the adjoining bricks, and he thought of the glorious joy of seeing out again, feeling that he would welcome even the sight of Hamdi's blond moustache and the eunuch's hideous grin. Now the aperture emitted a pale gleam upon his chest. Staring steadily down, he caught a glimpse of the fingers curving about a brick, and his heart that had steadied began to race again wildly, for they were not the fingers of the black, nor yet the wiry joints of the general. They were soft, white fingers, with a gleam of rings. Amy, somehow, somewhere, she had managed to come to him, to achieve this rescue. Amy, he breathed the name. Shh! came a warning little whisper and impatiently he waited until that opening should be greater and permit of sight and speech. His helplessness was maddening. If only he could raise his hands, could get those bonds off. 
He twisted, he writhed, he tried to lift his elbows and get his wrists in reach of the opening, but the coffin was too diabolically cramped for movement until the hole was very much larger. Then, with a convulsive pressure, he swung his wrists within reach, and after a moment's wait he felt a thin blade drawn across the silk. The relief was glorious. He swung his hands free, rubbing the chafed wrists, then thrust an open hand out into the opening, and with an instant comprehension a short, pointed bit of iron was put within it. Now he could do something. With furious strength he attacked the bricks edging the hole, and as he pried free each brick he could again get a glimpse of those white, delicate fingers lifting it carefully away. And now the hole was large enough. He twisted about and thrust out a leg, and then, with a feeling of ecstasy which made the official literary raptures of saints and conquerors but pale, dim moods, he wormed his way out of that jagged hole and turned, erect and free, to the shrouded figure of his rescuer. She had drawn back a little against the wall, a gauzy veil across her face. Beside her, upon the stone floor, a solitary candle sent its flickering rays into the shadows, edging with light her slender outlines. Ryder took one quick step to her, his heart in his throat, and put out eager arms. But in the very moment that he was gathering her to him, even when he felt her pliant body, at first resistant, then softly yielding, swept against his own, he felt, too, a little palm suddenly upon his mouth. "'Hush!' said the soft whispering voice, cutting into his low murmur of, "'Amy!' and then, in slow, emphatic caution, "'Be careful!' He had need of that caution, for under the saffron veil was not the face of Amy. He was clasping a young creature that he had never seen before, a girl with flaming henna hair and coal-darkened brows, a vivid, blazoning face that smiled enigmatically with a certain mockery of delight at the amazement he reflected so unguardedly. End of chapter 16Chapter Seventeen of the Fortieth Door. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Fortieth Door by Mary Hastings Bradley. Chapter Seventeen. Aziza. From the slackening grip of his astounded arms, she stepped backward, still smiling faintly and holding up in admonishment the palm she had pressed against his mouth. "'But what—what what the dev—' muttered Ryder. She nodded mysteriously and beckoned. "'Come,' she whispered, catching up her candle, and after holding it high for a moment, staring at him, she extinguished it suddenly, and turned to lead the cautious way across the stone spaces while Ryder closely followed. Not Amy, then, but some messenger, he could only suppose. Some confidant at need. A handmaid?' The whisper of her silks, the remembered gleam of jewels in the henna hair, flouted that thought, and not troubling his ingenuity with alternatives, he was content to follow her swift steps. They were now in those open, rubbishy spaces where he remembered the crumbling masonry and broken arches of old, disregarded mosques. Now they were again enclosed in narrow stone walls, winding past cellars and storerooms. The girl's advance grew more cautious. Often she stopped and listened peering ahead into the darkness, and now, as she took another turning, her care redoubled, and Ryder needed no exhortation to imitate it. Obeying a gesture of her arm, he followed at a greater distance, prepared, at the warning of a sound, to flatten himself against the wall or dart into some cranny of retreat. 
They were now in the cellars. The corridor was widening out before them, with a pallid showing of light, crossed with many bars at some far end. They stole towards it. It was a window, or barred gate, he saw, and he heard again that lapping of restless water against stone. He could see, too, in the dimness, the curve of a stair near the gate. Abruptly his guide checked him. Wary and noiseless, he waited, while she stole forward to those stairs, peering up into the gloom, attentive for any sound from above. Apparently satisfied, she went on towards the barred gate, and bent down over a spot of darkness which Ryder had taken for a shadow. He saw now that it had some semblance to a human outline. Closely the girl bent, and he caught the pallor of her hands, searching swiftly, and then a muffled clink. Next moment, a wraith with soundless steps, she was back at his side again, urging him on with her. They passed the stairs. He felt the soft yield of carpet beneath his feet. They passed that recumbent figure, and now he heard the rhythm of a sleeper's heavy breath, escaping muffledly from the folds of a thick mantle which the sleeper's habits had wrapped about his head. For all the mantle he was aware of the fumes of wine. "'I saw that Jahafar had his drink,' said the girl suddenly, in soft-whispered Turkish, her head close to his. "'He is my friend. I do not neglect him.' And under her breath she laughed, as she exhibited the great bunch of keys she had taken from the imbiber. Stooping now before the gate, she fitted the key into the lock. Then over her shoulder she looked up at the young man, and asked him a quick question. He did not understand. That was the trouble with his vernacular. It would go on very well for a time, when he had a clue to the sense, or when it was a question of everyday expression. But a sudden divergence, an unexpected word, was apt to prove a hopeless obstacle. Now she repeated her question again, more slowly, and again he shook his head. Now she stood up, frowning a little, and began again in English. You, no, I not know. This way? You do it? A sudden smile broke over her face, as she made a swift pushing gesture with her hands, that, with her pointing to the water outside, sent Ryder a sudden enlightenment. Swim? You mean do I swim? She nodded. Not go. She made a swift downward movement of her hands, and then pointed again to that water just outside the gate. Not go down, not sink, interpreted Ryder. No, indeed, I can swim, he assured her, and revisited with smiling satisfaction she knelt again before the barred gate. Open it swung with so sharp a crack that both glanced at the figure behind them, and then at the shadowy gloom of the stairs. But no alarm sounded. Outside the gate Ryder saw the darkness of fairly wide, rippling waters, visited with floating stars, and beyond a low-lying, dun bank. Escape was there. Freedom. Safety. He felt an exultant longing to plunge in and strike out, but he turned questioningly to the mysterious rescuer. Amy, he said under his breath, where is she? He repeated it in the vernacular, distrusting her English, and in the vernacular she answered, You want her? You want to take her away with you? She laughed softly at the quick flash in his eyes, and hardly waited for his speech. Good, what a lover! You are not afraid? Mendaciously he assured her that he was not. Good, she said again, with a showing of white teeth between her carmined lips. You take her. You take her away from him. That is what I want, you understand? Very suddenly he understood. End of chapter 17「Chapter 18 of the Fortieth Door. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. 
For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. THE FORTIETH DOOR by Mary Hastings Bradley CHAPTER Eighteen: AZIZA IS OFFENDED This was no emissary from Ami. This was no philanthropic bystander. This was some girl of the palace, jealous and daring, conspiring shrewdly for the removal of her rival. "'Take her away,' she was saying urgently. "'Out of this palace. We want no brides here.' Lowering and sullen, she turned bitter on the word. "'Tonight I was watching.' she went on swiftly. I heard the noise, and then the whispering. The darkness has ears and eyes and a tongue, and so I waited out there. He could not distinguish all the quick flow of her speech, but he caught enough to understand how she had lurked in the halls, jealously spying, defying the eunuch's authority, and how she had caught with passionate delight that stifled alarm of scandal. Later, hanging over some banister, she had seen the Ethiopian pass with his burden, and had stolen down afterwards, stalking like a cat, and had discovered the lantern gone, the door unlocked, and then she had watched until the pair emerged without the burden. She had not been able to get hold of the key to the door, but she had resolved to explore, and so she had furnished the waterman with his wine, drugged, Ryder gathered, and so stolen past him on the other route to those underground foundations to which her suspicions had been directed by the mortar and dust upon Yusuf. Evidently she knew the possibilities of the place, and the mind of its master, and when she found the old niche freshly bricked and mortar at hand, she had not needed more to assure her that here was the burial-place of her rival's lover. Now, for the boon of his life, he was to relieve her of that rival, or try to. "'For once he might not kill her,' she whispered. "'But if again—' Her eyes glowed like a cat's in the dark. "'Take her away. Make her name a spitting and a disgrace.' her memory a shame and a sting. Is she beautiful? she broke off to demand. They say, but slaves lie. Can you believe a lover? he said whimsically, for all his impatience. She is a pearl, a rose, a crescent moon. They say she is very pale and thin. She is a hurry from paradise, he said distinctly. And now, in the name of Allah, let me get to her. Tell me the way. Will she go gladly with you? The low, insistent voice went on, and at his quick nod, holy prophet what a bride she clapped her two ringed hands to smother the impish joy of her laugh a warning to those who can be warned he will not be so eager for another stripe from that same stick it was his cousin saniha hanam satan devour her who made this marriage always she hated me but now i will tell you how to get her look out with me kneeling at the gate over the dark flow of the water she drew him down beside her and thrusting out her veiled head she pointed upward and to the right to a jutting balcony of Mashrubier, where a pale light showed through the fretwork. There, you see, that is my room, and if you climb up I can let you in. There, up, she repeated in English, resolved to make certain. I see, I can get there, he assured her, measuring with his eye the dim distance. At once, she said, I will be there. I cannot take you with me through the upper hall. It is dangerous even for me to be caught but no eunuch wants my displeasure. He could believe it, watching the subtle, malicious daring of her face. Even in the gloom he caught the steady-lidded arrogance of her coal-darkened eyes and the bold insolence of a high cheekbone. She had a hint of gypsy. "'And you can get me in? You're a wonder,' he whispered. "'I can't thank you enough.' "'Rid me of her,' said the girl swiftly. "'But not—not him. You must swear. What is it that Christians swear by?' she broke off to demand. 
by the grave of your father yes you will swear not to hurt him to hurt hamdi by the grave of your father yes ryder nodded quickly his father to be sure was in no grave at all he was allowing hastily for the difference in time in his treasurer's cage at the bank in east middleton but he did not wait to explain this to the girl i swear it he repeated i won't hurt your hamdi since that's your condition but we're wasting time up then and if you fall down do like this smiling mischievously she made the gesture of swimming allah go with thee and with me also he heard her murmur as he stepped out to the ledge of the entrance twisted himself agilely about and climbing up the open gate swung himself up to the stone carving overhead below him he heard the gate swing shut he did not hear her lock it fervently he hoped she had not since it was a possible exit for any one in a hurry but at any rate he need not worry about a way out of the place until he had got into it again and the getting in was not any too simple it was work for a mountain goat he reflected after a short interval devoted to tentative reaches and balancing and digging in of hands and feet the distances were far greater than the first glimpse foreshortened perspective had allowed him to guess and there was only the starlight to illumine the grey face of the palace he had no idea of the time somewhere about the middle of the night or early morning he judged vaguely by the stars although it seemed impossible that so few hours had passed the river was all silence and darkness no nugars with their sleeping crews were moored below he seemed the only living breathing thing clambering across the face of time and space gingerly he kicked off the nondescript black shoes he had worn with his disguise that afternoon and essayed a perilous toehold while he reached for the interstices of a mashrubier window just overhead once gripping the rounds he pulled himself up reflecting that it was well it was night and that no lady was sitting within her shelter to be affrighted at this intrusion of fingers and toes from the jutting top of this projection he surveyed his further field of operation the window with a light was two stories higher yet and to the right there were two other windows with lights on the second story very much farther along and he wondered painfully if these were the rooms of amy that boudoir in which he had hidden through the end of the long reception had been upon the water and there had been a door into an adjoining room for he had seen a sallow-faced attendant passing in and out a wild longing seized him to crawl on and over into those windows but it was a difficult almost an impossible distance and even when there he would be like a fly on the outside of a pane with no way of getting in the unknown girl had promised him a way through her window and he had confidence in her ingenuity and daring so he went on worming cautiously along old gutters and ledges and jutting balconies until at last he was clasping the lower grill of that mashrubier from which her light gleamed instantly the light went out wait he heard her voice say sharply over his head she was standing by the window fumbling with the woodwork and in a moment he heard the click of a knob and then just opposite his head the screening grill slipped aside and an aperture appeared quick admonished the voice and quickly indeed he drew himself up and in reflecting whimsically as he did so that this girl had first helped him out of a hole and then into one the next moment she had moved the grill into place and lifted the cover she had placed over her triplet of candles on a stand triumphant her eyes dancing her teeth a gleam of light between those scarlet lips of hers she looked at him for the admiration she saw twinkling back at her in his eyes but not me no she protested her supple hands gesturing towards the magic casement i found it here it is very old you understand 
some other, long ago, found time dull, and so— Delightedly she shared the flavor of that secret of the vagabond lady of long ago, who had devised this cunning entrance for her lover. On some dark night like this, with the gatekeeper drowsy with old wine, some other stripling had climbed that worn façade before him, and slipped through the secret space, and stood triumphantly before some daring, laughing girl, who had cast aside for him her veil, and her fear of death. What ingenuity, Ryder wondered fleetly, had smuggled in the carpenter for the contrivance, what jewels had gone to the bribing, what lies had been told, what had been the end of it all? Evidently not the discovery of the opening. He hoped, with singular intensity, for the safety of the daring young lovers, that unknown youth whose feet had forewarned the path for his feet, and that dead and gone young girl, who had dared anything rather than endure the mortal ennui of those hours behind the veil. These thoughts all went through him like one thought as he stood there, his eyes roving about the dim, shadowy room of old divans and eastern hangings, and then turning back to the glimmering figure of its mistress. She was staring frankly at him, her eyes boldly curious and examining. They were not dark eyes, he saw now. That had been the impression given by the coal around them, and the black line of the brows penciled into one line. They were yellow eyes, golden and glowing, scornful and lazy-lidded. As she looked at him, these eyes smiled slowly. She was seeing in this lover of her rival a singularly delightful-looking young man, for all his dust and disarray, a slender, bronzed, hearty-looking young man, with dark, disordered hair straying across a white brow, and audacious, eager eyes, in which the fear of death, so lately glimpsed, had left no daunting reflection. Slowly she lifted her hand, and with deliberate softness put back that straying hair of his. "'Poor boy!' she said slowly in English, and then, smiling ruefully, she held out her hands for his inspection. The grime of the bricks had discolored their scented delicacy, and he saw bruised finger-tips and a torn nail. "'I'm infernally sorry,' he said quickly. Her smile deepened at his look of concern, as he held, a little helplessly, the witnesses of her work of rescue which seemed somehow to stray into his keeping. "'It is nothing but you, poor boy,' she said again, in that English of which she seemed naively proud. "'If you could give me some water,' he suggested, and drank deep with delight the last drop she brought him from an earthen jar. It seemed to wash from his throat the taste of that dust and fear. "'I can't begin to thank you,' he murmured. "'I only wish that I could do something for you.' She looked up at him. They were standing close together, their voices cautiously low. "'Perhaps, yes, you can.' "'It's not doing anything for you to save Amy,' he told her. "'That's what you are doing for her and for me.' But if ever you want me for anything after this, my name is Ryder, Jack Ryder, and you can reach me at the Agricultural Bank. He had a vague vision of some day repaying his enormous debt by assisting this girl, grown tired of her Hamdi, out of this aperture and into a waiting boat. He would do it like a shot, he told himself gladly. He would do anything on God's green earth, if only she helped him get Amy away from that infernal villain. Jack, she repeated under her breath, and then in her slow English, I like Jack. Don't forget it. I'll always come and do anything for you, and if you'll tell me your name, Aziza. Aziza. I'll never forget that. And now, if you'll tell me how I can get to her, and then the best way out. Why you so hurry? Why? He looked a little blank. I can't lose a minute. He may be with her. She came a little nearer to him, her head tilting back with a slow, indolent challenge. 
Gone was the silken mantle that had been about her below stairs, and he saw now that she was a vivid, exotic shimmer of gauzy green against the saffron veil that fell from her henna hair. There was barbaric beauty in her, in the bold, painted face, the bare, gold-banded arms, the slender, sinuous lines, and there was barbaric splendor in the heavy jewels that winked and flashed. It struck Ryder that she was gotten up, regardless, in pride, perhaps, on her rival's wedding night, or had there been some defiant, desperate design upon Hamdi? She did not miss that sudden prolonging of his look upon her. "'You like me, yes?' she murmured, and then slipping back into the vernacular, "'I—I I am not the stupid veiled girl of the seclusion. Not for ever. I come from the West, the deserts. I have seen the world. Men. Men I know. I dance before them. Not the dances of the Carine cafés,' she uttered with swift scorn, "'but the dance of the two swords, the dance of the serpents. Men threw the gold from their turbans about my feet when I danced to them, and others, English, French.' She broke off, but her eyes told many things. "'Then Hamdi,' she said slowly, "'him I ruled, and his palace. But I have known other things.' Closer yet she came to him. Her eyes, golden fires of eyes, were smiling up into his, her scarlet lips gathered in soft, sensual curves. Her whole silken-scented body seemed to slip into his embrace. A bare arm touched his neck, resting heavily. "'Sweetheart,' she said slowly, in her difficult English. It was the deuce of a position. No man can rudely snatch from his neck the arm of the lady who has just saved him from a harrowing death, and a lady who is risking more than her life in sheltering him. Decidedly, the situation was delicate. It was not the lady's fault that her impetuosity, the impetuosity which had been his salvation, now plunged her into amorous caprice. There were obvious handicaps, moral, social, and ethical, in her upbringing. She was a child of nature, a nature undisciplined, unruly, tempestuous. And even queening over Hamdi and his palace must have offered little diversion to a wild dancing girl, familiar with the excitement of more varied conquest. Ryder was horribly embarrassed. He was visited with a fearful constraint, a chivalrous wish not to hurt her feelings, and a sharp provision of the danger of offending her. He took the first turn of least resistance. He did not need to bend his head. Their eyes were on a level. He simply kissed her, and she kissed him back. He hated himself for the leap of his blood, and for the puritanical discomfort of his nature. Her arm about his neck was pressing closer. It was the moment for action, and Ryder acted. Very firmly he put his hand upon her hand, withdrew it from its clasp about him, and raised it to his lips. His kiss was respectful gratitude and an abdication of the delights of dalliance. "'Good-bye, my dear,' he murmured. "'Now, if you will show me the way out.' Her eyes agleam between half-closed lids, she studied him. It occurred to Ryder that probably never before had her hands been detached and kissed and put away. He must be a phenomenon, an enigma." Then her eyes parted in a faintly scornful smile. "'You afraid? You? You want to run?' "'I'm horribly afraid,' he said earnestly. "'I want to get out of here as quick as I can.' That was pudding, he considered, the very wisest construction upon it. Negligently her gesture reminded him of the opening in the window. "'Here you are safe,' she murmured in the vernacular, "'and the doors are locked.' "'Yes, but—but Amy but isn't safe, you know, and I must get her out of here.' Amy? In those yellow eyes he caught the flash of capricious resentment at the reminder. Then, indifferently, she brushed the distraction away. 
there is time enough for amy she is not lonely now not lonely he shivered at the cold carelessness of her tone i must get to her quickly then but it is not safe a little later uncomfortably he tried to infuse his glance with innate innocence and utter lack of understanding i shan't hurt him if i have the chance he told her i've given you my word and i trust you much her gaze sought his in a trifle of impatience at such simplicity but it is not safe for you now later by and by you don't want him to have a chance to make love to her do you said ryder sharply i thought that was the very thing you didn't her smile was a subtle confessing caress i shall have my revenge she murmured and pressed closer to him again every sensuous sumptuous line of her a challenge and an enticement i give you life she whispered very low in her throat you give me perhaps an hour i haven't an hour said ryder very desperately and unhappily not when amy is with that devil it took every thought of amy to get the words out he felt a brute about it a low ungrateful dog she had given him life and every fibre in him clamoured to save her pride and champion her caprice it seemed so dastardly to wrench away from her now like some self-centred joseph leaving that beastly stab in her vanity and she was a stunning creature lawless elemental hot and cold like the seventh wind of the inferno but it was amy who was in his blood like a fever amy that frail white rose of a girl in her bonds of terror he saw the flame in aziza's eyes he saw the stiffening of her defiance of half incredulous affront then her form drawn up her bared arms outflung her vivid painted furious face challenging him i am not beautiful like amy she said in a voice of venom and in the english for double measure you not like me no you are beautiful and i do like you ryder combated feeling a bungling fool and then went on to thrust into that half-second of suspended fury a faint breath of appeasing but don't you see it's my duty you go she said clearly even in that moment he had a sharp prescience of the unwisdom of his rejection a cold calculator of chance and probabilities would have reckoned that a half-hour of assuagement here would have been a wiser investment of his mortal moments than any virtuous plunge into single-hearted duty but ryder did not calculate he could not with amy under that beast's hand his heart and soul were possessed with her danger and his heart and soul carried his body instinctively back from the dancing girl's advance and he whispered i must go there is no time she flung back her fiery-hued head with a gesture of intolerable rage her eyes were lightnings dog of a christian she said chokingly and flew to the doors back she thrust the heavy hangings turning a quick key in the lock and wrenching the door wide and before ryder could understand before he could bring himself to realize that she was not simply violently expelling him from her room she gave a shriek that rang wildly down the long unseen corridors at the top of her lungs with one hand out to thrust him back or cling to him if he attempted to pass she shrieked again and again instantly there came a running of feet end of chapter eighteen Chapter Nineteen of the Fortieth Door. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Fortieth Door by Mary Hastings Bradley. Chapter Nineteen: An Interruption. 
When Hamdi Bey had taken Amy back to her apartments, he pulled sharply upon a bell cord. In a few moments the slave-woman, Fatima, made her appearance, no kindly-eyed old crone like Miriam, but a sallow, furtive-faced creature, with an old disfiguring scar across a cheek. The general pointed to the wet and fainting girl huddling weakly upon the divan. "'Your new mistress has met with an accident out boating. A curse upon me for gratifying forbidden caprice,' he said crisply. "'Be silent of this, and array her quickly in garments of rest. I will return.' Very hurriedly he took himself and his own wet condition away. He was furious through and through. What a night! What a wedding night! Scandal and frustration! A bride with a desperate lover! A bride who, herself, drew revolvers and threatened! It was beyond any old tale of the palace. For less, girls had had his father's dagger driven through their hearts. His grandfather, at a mere whisper from a eunuch, had given his favourite to the lion. The whisper was found incorrect at a later, too late, date, and the eunuch had furnished the lion another meal. His modern leniency in this case would have outraged his ancestors. But it was not in the bay's nature to deal the finishing stroke to anything so soft and lovely as Amy. He had no intention of depriving himself of her. If she were red with guilt he would feign belief in her, to save his face until his infatuation was gratified. But actually he did not believe in any great guilt of hers. Tufik Pasha, for all his indulgent modernity, would keep too strict a harem for that. What he rather believed had happened was that the young American, now so happily immured in his masonry, had become aware of the girl through the story of her French father, and in that connection had struck up the clandestine and romantic correspondence which had led to their mutual infatuation and his desperate venture there that afternoon. The young man had been dealt with, and the thought of the very summary and competent way he had been dealt with drew the fangs from the bite of that night's invasion. His fury felt soothingly glutted. He had been a match for them both. He recalled his own subtlety and agility with a genuine smile, as he exchanged his dripping uniform for more informal trousers and a housecoat. He had taught that young man a lesson, a final and ultimate lesson, and he was beginning to teach one to that girl, before he was done with her. He felt for her a mingled passion for her beauty, and a lust for conquest of her resistant spirit that fed every base and cruel instinct of his nature. A find, a rare find, even with her circumvented lover. He would have his sport with her, but though he promised this to himself with feline relish, apprehension and chagrin were still working. The fond fatuity with which he had welcomed that starry-eyed little creature had been rudely overthrown, and his pride smarted at the idea of the whispers that might echo and re-echo through his palace. He was too wise an old hand to flatter himself that it would preserve its bland and silent unawareness of this night. So far, he believed, he had been unobserved. In Yusuf's silence he had absolute confidence. But, of course, there were a hundred other chances, some spying backstairs eye, some curious straining ear. And for this matter of the boating mishap, he cursed himself now, as he combed up his fair moustaches and settled a scarlet fez upon his thin thatch of graying hair, cursed himself roundly for his malicious resort to that old oubliette. Anything else would have done to frighten and overwhelm her, and yet he had gratified his dramatic itch, and now had paid for it with that idiotic story of the boating expedition. He had reason to trust Fatima. There was history behind the old sword-scar upon her cheek, and he had a hold over her through her ambition for a son. But Fatima was a woman, and she, or some other, who would see that drenched satin, would be curious of that boating story. And, of course, they could find out from the boatman. 
it occurred to him to go and see the boatman and order him away so that afterward the man could say he had been sent off duty and the story of a nocturnal river trip would not appear too incredible it was a small concession to stop gossip's mouth so drawing on a swinging military cloak the general stole down through the stair of the water entrance into the lower hall where the pale light gleamed through the cross-barred iron of the gate and the gatekeeper slept like a log in his muffling cloak the soundness of that slumber loudly attested by the fumes of wine afforded the general a profound pleasure he took the man's keys softly and went to the gate it afforded him less pleasure to observe that the gate was unlocked but he put this down to the keeper's muddle-headedness carefully he turned the lock and pocketed the keys for a lesson to the man's over-deep sleep in the morning and to attest his own presence there that night then he went back and brought out an oar which he placed conspicuously beside the smallest boat drawn up just within the gates he was afraid to alter the boat's position lest the noise should prove too wakening but he considered he had laid an artistic foundation for his story and with a gratifying sense of triumph he mounted the stairs he was not conscious of fatigue he had always been a wiry indefatigable person and the alarms and emotions of this night had cleared his head of its wines and drowsiness he felt the sense of tense high-strung power which came to him in war in fighting in any element of danger youth he snapped his fingers at it youth was buried in his masonry and helpless in its shuttered room power was master power craft subtlety but his elation ebbed as he crossed again that long drawing-room with its faded flowers about the marriage throne and its abandoned table with its cloth askew its crystal disarrayed its candles gutted and spent the memory of that insolent moment when a man's hand had gripped him had whirled him from amy when a man's voice and gun had threatened him that memory was too overpowering for even his triumph over the invader to lay wholly its smart of outrage he felt again the tightening of his nerves like quivering wires as he crossed the violated reception-room and entered the boudoir it was empty but on the divan the flickering candlelight revealed the damp spreading stain where amy's drenched satins had been he thrust aside a hanging and pushed open the door into the room beyond it was a small bedroom evidently very recently furnished in new and white shining lacquer of french design elaborately inlaid with painted porcelains and draped with a profusion of rosy taffeta among this elegance surprisingly unrelated to the ancient panelled walls stood the hastily opened trunk and bags of the bride their raised lids and disarranged trays heaped with the confusion of unaccustomed swiftly searching hands amy herself in a gay little french boudoir robe of jade and citron sat huddled in a chair like a mute terrified child in the hand of her dresser who was shaking out the long damp hair and fanning it with a peacock fan at the bay's entrance fatima suspended the fanning but with easy familiarity exhibited the long ringlets curtly the bay nodded and gestured in dismissal the woman laid down her fan and with a last slant-eyed look at the strangely still new mistress she went noiselessly out a small service door with an air of negligent assurance hamdi bey gazed about the room and yawned truly a fatiguing evening he remarked in his dry sardonic voice but you look so untouched what a thing is radiant youth he sauntered over to her who drew a little closer together at his approach and lifted one of the long dark curls that the serving-woman had exhibited the ringlets of loveliness he murmured you know the old saying of the sadi the ringlets of the lovely are a chain on the feet of reason and a snare for the bird of wisdom 
How long ago he said it, and how true to-day! Yet such a charming chain! Suppose, then, I forgive you, little one, since sages have forgiven beauty before. She was silent, her eyes fixed on him with the silent terror with which a trapped bird sees its captor, in their bright darkness the same mute apprehension, the same filming of helpless despair. Ryder was dead, she thought. This cruel, incensed old madman had killed him, for all his oaths. Somewhere beneath those ancient stones he was lying drowned and dead, a strange, pitiable addition to the dark secrets of those grim walls. He had died for her sake, and all that she asked now of life, she thought, in the utter agony of her youth, was death, and very quickly. "'I am so soft-hearted,' he sighed, still with that ringlet in his lifted hand, his hand which wanted palpably to settle upon her, and yet was withheld by some strange inhibition of those fixed, helpless eyes. "'Who knows? Perhaps I may forgive you yet. You might persuade me.' "'He is dead,' she said shiveringly. "'Dead? He? Ah, the invader, the intruder, the young man who wanted you for a family in France!' The bay laughed gratingly. "'No, I assure you he is not dead. I have not harmed a hair of his head.' He is alive, only not with quite the widest range of liberty. He broke off to laugh again. Ah, you disbelieve, he said politely. Shall I send, then, for some proof, an ear, perhaps, or a little finger, still very warm and bleeding, to convince you? In five minutes it will be here. Then terror stirred again in her frozen heart. If Ryder were alive and still in this man's power, you are horrible she said to him, in a voice that was suddenly clear and unshaken. "'What is it you want of me? Fear and hate and utter loathing?' Her unexpected spirit was briefly disconcerting. The Turk looked down upon her in arrested irony, and then he smiled beneath his moustaches, and bent nearer with kindling gaze. "'Not at all! Not at all like that little dove with talons! I want sweetness and repentance and submission, and—' "'You have a strange way to win them,' she said desperately. You have taken a strange way with me, my love. Little did I foresee, when I escorted you up the stairs this morning. He broke off. There are men, he reminded her, who would not consider a cold bath as a complete recompense for your bridal plans. She was silent. But I, he murmured, I am soft-hearted. He dropped on one knee before her, and tried to smile into her averted face. I can never resist a charming penitent. I assure you I am pliability itself in delicate fingers, although iron and steel to a threatening hand, if you should woo me very sweetly, little one. She could not overcome, and she could not hide from his mocking eyes the sick shrinking that drew her back from his least touch, but she did fight down the wild hysteria of her repugnance, so that her voice was not the trembling gasp it wanted to be. How can I know what you are? she told him. You mock me. You threaten to torture that man. It would be folly not to think that you are deceiving me, if you would only prove to me so that I could believe. If you would but prove to me so that I could believe. Prove that you are mine, and not that infidel's. Prove that you bring me a wife's devotion, not a wanton's indifference. He caught her cold hands, trying to draw her forward to him. Prove that you only pity him, he whispered, but that your love will be mine. She felt as if a serpent clasped her, and yet, if that were the only way to win Ryder's safety, if it were possible for her sickened senses to allay this bad man's suspicions and undermine his revenge. Quiveringly she thought that to save Ryder she would go through fire. But the hideous, mocking uncertainties, 
her utter helplessness, her lost deference. It was not a sudden sound that broke in upon them, but rather the perception of many sounds, muffled, half-heard, but gaining upon their consciousness, running feet, a stifled voice, something faint and shrill. Amy sprang to her feet. The general rose with her, and turned his head inquiringly in the direction. Then he jerked open the door through which Fatima had disappeared. It led to a dark service corridor and a small anteroom, from whose bed the attendant was absent. An outer door was ajar. No need to question the sounds now. Faint but piercingly shrill shrieks were sounding from above, while the footsteps were racing, some down, some up. The bay flung shut the door behind him, and hurried towards the confusion. End of chapter 19「Twenty of the Fortieth Door. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Fortieth Door by Mary Hastings Bradley. Chapter Twenty Beyond the Door. Ryder had stood stock still with amazement when the girl began to scream. She had gone mad, he thought for an instant, in masculine bewilderment and then her madness revealed its treacherous cunning, for she began crying wildly for help against an invader, an infidel, a dog of a Christian who had stolen into her rooms. She had chucked him to the lions, Ryder perceived. One furious flash of lightning jealousy and oriental anger had overthrown in that wild and lawless head every other design for him for which she had risked so much. He had scorned her, he had flouted her caprice, he had dared to refuse the languors of those dangerous eyes. The hurrying footsteps appeared to him the tread of a legion in action, and he had no desire to rush out upon the oncomers. He had, indeed, distinct doubts of his ruthless ability to pass that supple, clawing, incensed creature at the door. He whirled, and made a bolt for the window, striking at the fastened grill. He heard the snapping of wooden bolts and the splintering of wood, and out through the hole he climbed to a precipitous, headlong flight that fairly felt the clutching hands upon his ankle. He had meant to make a jump for it, a three-story plunge into the Nile appeared a gentle exercise compared to the alternative within the palace, but in the very act of releasing his hold he changed his mind. Quicker than he had ever moved before, in any vicissitude of his lithe and agile youth, he clambered up, not down, and crouching back from sight upon the jutting top of the window he sent his coat, sailing violently through space. He dared not look over for its descent upon the water, for other heads were peering from below and he could hear an excited outburst of speech that broke sharply off. Evidently they were hurrying down to the water-gate. Swiftly he utilized this misdirection for his own ends. The roofs, that was the refuge to make for, flat, long-reaching roofs, from which one could climb off onto a wall or a palm or a side street. He had only a story to ascend, and he made it in record time, fearful that the searchers whom he heard now launching a boat below would turn their eyes skywards. But he gained the top without an outcry being raised, and found himself upon the roof where the ladies of the harem took their air, unseen of any, save the blind eyes of the musin in the sultan mosque upon the hill. There were the divans and a little tabaret or two, and a framework where an awning could be raised against the sun. There was also a trap-door. And here, tempestuously, he changed his mind again. He abandoned the goal of outer walls and chances of escape. He wrenched violently at that trap-door. It was bolted, but the bolt was an ancient one, and gave at his furious exertions, letting him down into a narrow spiral staircase between walls. 
down he plunged in haste, before some confused searcher should dash up. It was no place to meet an opposing force, nor was the corridor in which he found himself much better. It was black and baffling as a labyrinth, with unexpected turnings, and he kept gingerly close to the wall, with one hand clutching a bit of iron which he had taken into his possession and his pocket when Aziza had led him out of the underground walls, the very bit of pointed iron it was with which the volatile creature had effected his rescue. He considered it an invaluable souvenir, and twice in his nervous apprehension he almost brought it down upon shadows. Direction he judged vaguely by the screaming which was still going on at a tremendous rate. Evidently the girl had gone off into genuine hysterics, or else she had determined not to leave her agitation at the intrusion in any manner of question. No doubt the outcries were a relief to her mingled emotions. Remorse at her impetuosity, and chagrin at her thwarted plans, might conceivably be now among those emotions, and since the vicinity of those shrieks must be a gathering-place to be avoided by him, he stole on, down the upper hall, and finding a stair, he went down for two continuous flights. Amy's rooms, he knew, had been upon the water, and recalling the general direction of those two lighted windows that he had seen so recently from without, his excavator's instinct led him on. Once he saw the flitting figure of a turbaned woman in time to draw back into a heaven-sent niche, and again he flattened into a soundless shadow against the wall, as two young serving-girls ran by on slippered feet, their ankles tinkling, chattering to each other in delighted excitement. And then the stealthy opening of a door. It was the very door by which Yusuf had precipitated himself upon the struggle at the supper-table some age-long hours ago gave him a glimpse into the far glooms of the reception-room, where its long side of mashrubier windows revealed now between its fretwork tiny chinks of a paling sky. He could make out the dark-draped marriage-throne and the pallor of the disordered cloth upon the abandoned table below, and behind the table the dark draperies of the remaining portières before the doorway into the boudoir where he had hidden himself, and into which he had last seen Amy thrust. At the other end of the great room were the entrance stairs to the harem, and there, he imagined, a watchman was stationed, or else stout bolts and bars were guarding the situation. There remained an arched doorway into other formal rooms through which he had seen Amy and the guests disappear for the wedding supper, and that way led, he surmised, down into the service quarters. A sorry choice of exits! He could form no plan in advance, but trust blindly to the amazing chances of adventure, and first, before he rushed for escape, there was Amy to find. Yet, for all the mad hazard of the situation, he was elated with life. He felt as if he had never fully lived until now, when every breath was informed with the sharp prescience of danger. He was at once cool and exultant, wary yet reckless, with the joyous recklessness of utter desperation. With cat-like care he surveyed the drawing-room. It appeared deserted, but as he watched his tense nerves could see the shadows forming, taking furtive, crouching shape, and then dissolving harmlessly into a rug, a chair, or a stirring drapery. His eyes grown used to the dimness, he identified the mantle upon the floor in which he had come, and which he had extended to Amy in that brief moment of fatuous triumph, and beyond it, across a chair, was the portiere which the black had torn down from the doorway to wrap about Ryder's helpless form as he had carried him down to living death. That mantle, he thought, might yet be useful and he stole forward and recovered it, but as he straightened, another shadow darted out from the boudoir door, and silhouetted for an instant against the lighted room 
he saw a figure in a long, swinging military cloak. Discovery was inevitable, and Ryder made a swift plunge to take the cloaked figure by surprise, but even as one hand shot out and gripped the throat, while the other held his threatening iron aloft, his clutch relaxed, his arm fell nervelessly at his side. For from the figure had come the broken gasp of a soft voice, and the face upturned to his was a pale oval under dark, disordered hair. "'Amy!' he breathed in exultant, still half-incredulous joy. "'Amy, did I hurt you?' "'Oh, no, no!' came Amy's shaken voice. "'Oh, you are safe!' He felt her trembling in his clasp, and he swept her close to him. For one breathless instant they clung together, in a sharp, passionate gladness, which blurred every sense of dread or danger. They were safe, they were together, and for the moment it was enough. Every obstacle was surmounted, every terror conquered. They clung, obliviously, like children, her pale face against his shoulder, her hair brushing his lips, her wild heartbeats throbbing against his own. Then the girl, remembering, lifted her head. "'Quick, we must go,' she whispered. "'For there I made a fire.' He followed her frightened, backward glance at the boudoir door, and suddenly saw its cracks and keyhole, strangely radiant with light. "'He left me to go to those screams,' she was saying rapidly. "'I tried to run that way, and found that woman coming back, and I told her to wait in her own room, and I slipped back in there. And suddenly it came to me to thrust the candle about. I thought I would run out, and if I met anyone I would call fire, and say the general was burning, and perhaps in the confusion—' The terrible desperation of her both stirred and wrung him. She was so little, so helpless, so trembling in his clasp, so made for love and tenderness, and to think of her in such fear and horror that she went thrusting reckless candles into her hangings, setting a palace on fire in the blind fury for escape. To such work had this night brought her, this night, and three men, for he, and the craven Tufik, and the fanatic Bey, were all linked in this night's work. Yes, and another man, and he thought swiftly, in a lightning flash of wonder, how little that Paul Delcasse had known, when he set his eager face toward the old world, with his wife and baby with him, that he was setting his feet into such a web, that his wife would die languishing in a pasha's harem, and his little daughter would one night be flying in mad terror from the cruel beast the weak pasha had sold her to. And how little, for that matter, he had known, when he had set his own face toward those same sands, what secrets he would discover there, and what forbidden ways his heart would know. These thoughts all went through him like one thought, in some clear, remote background of his mind, while he was swiftly drawing on the military cloak she gave him, and wrapping her in the black mantle. There was a veil on the mantle's hood that she could fling across her face when she wished, but Ryder had no fez to complete the deceptive outline of his masquerade. He must trust to the dark, and to the concealment of the high military collar of the cloak. "'Do you know a way?' he whispered, and at her shaken head. "'The water-gate,' he said, thinking swiftly. There would be a crowd now about the gate, but if they could only manage to gain those cellars and hide somewhere, they could steal out later upon that waterman. It seemed the most feasible of all the desperate plans. The roofs might be a trap, the harem entrance led into a garden, and the garden was guarded by an impassable wall. But if he could only get to the river, he knew that he was a strong enough swimmer to save Amy or he might even terrorize the watchman into furnishing a boat. She did not question, but guided him swiftly through the arch that led down into the banqueting hall. Twice that day she had gone down those stairs, once in her bridal state, her eyes shining, her cheeks glowing, with the wild joy of Ryder's arrival and dreams of escape, and again, 
Scarcely an hour gone by she had descended them, tense and desperate, her revolver at the general's head, seeking vainly Ryder's rescue. And now, a third time, a guilty, reckless fugitive in the night, she stole down those stairs into the many-columned hall where she had been feted in state among her guests. Here her only knowledge was of the stone corridor and the locked door through which the bay had led her, but Ryder knew the way that Aziza had brought him, and he turned cautiously towards those wide, curving stairs. Keeping Amy a few steps behind him, he went down the soft carpet and peered out at the bottom towards the water-gate. He saw no bars, the gate was open, and against the pale square of the water were the black silhouettes of the general and the gateman, both leaning out at some splashing in the river. He knew a boy's reckless impulse to shove them both in. It was an unholy thought his better judgment rejected, unless driven to it, yet some prankish element in his roused recklessness would not have deplored the necessity. If they looked about! But they did not stir, as, with Amy's cold hand in his, he made the tiptoe descent, and slipped softly about the corner of the steps. Then, instead of going on down the hall to some hiding-place in the ruins, he took a suddenly revealed, sharper turn into a narrow passage just beyond the stairs. It might lead to another gate, some service entrance, perhaps. It ran so straight and direct between its walls. Intuitively that excavator's sense of his defined the direction. They were going parallel with the river, although a little way back from the water-wall, and in the direction of the men's part of the palace, the Selimlik. He recalled the Selimlik vaguely as an irregular mass of buildings, and though the formal entrance was of course through the garden from the avenue, there was a narrow side street or lane leading back to the water's edge between this part of the palace and the nest building, and very likely there was some entrance on that lane. Bitterly he blamed himself for his lack of complete inspection that morning. To be sure, he had told himself then, as he strolled about the high garden walls and peered down the narrow lane on one side of the Nile backwaters, that he didn't need a map of the place for his arrival at an afternoon reception. He was simply going in and out, and clothes and speech were his only real concern. He had even said to himself that he might not reveal himself to Amy, if she did not discover him. He wanted merely to see her again, and be sure that she understood her own history. He had no notion of attempting any further relations with her, any resumption of their forbidden and dangerous acquaintance. And it was true that that had been the defiant and protesting surface of his thoughts, but deep within himself there had always been that hot hidden spark, ready to kindle to a flame at her word, and with it the unowned secret longing that she would speak the word. And when she had called on him for help, when the trembling appeal had sprung past her stricken pride, and he had seen the terror in her soft child's eyes, then the spark had struck its conflagration. He had become nothing but a hot, headstrong fury of devotion. And he said to himself now that he might have known it was going to happen, and that if he had not been so concerned that morning about saving his face and preserving this fiction of indifference, he would know a little more about the labyrinth they were poking about in, the little more that tips the scale between safety and destruction. But he did not know, and blind chance was his only goddess. The passage had brought him to a wall and a narrow stairs, while another passage led off to the right, apparently to the forward regions of the place. He took the stairs. He had had enough of the underground regions when they did not lean to water gates, and the stairs promised novelty, at least. He wished he knew more about Turkish palaces. He supposed they had a fairly consistent ground plan, but beyond a few main features of inner courts and halls, 
he was culpably ignorant of their intentions. If it were an early Egyptian tomb or temple now, but then, perhaps, the Turks were more indefinite in their building and rebuilding. At the head of the stairs a door stood half ajar. Through the crack he strained his eyes, but his anxious glance met only the darkness of utter night. Not a gleam of light, and not a sound, except the far, hollow stamping of some stabled horse. Slowly he pushed the door open, and he and Amy slipped within. The place, whatever it was, appeared deserted, a dark, bare, backstairs region, for he stumbled over a bucket, from which to the right he could just discern a hall leading into the forward part of the palace, wanely lighted some distance on, with the pale flicker of an old ceiling lamp. They seemed to be at the end of the hall, and the darker shadows in the walls about them appeared to be a number of doors, closed, so his groping hands informed him. Oh, for his excavator's steady light, or a pocket flash! Oh, for a light of any kind, even a temporary match! But he dared not risk the scratch, for now he caught the thud of footfalls overhead, heavy footfalls, and there might be stairs unexpectedly close at hand. He turned to Amy, but the girl shook her head helplessly, and hesitant and dashed, for all their young confidence, they wavered a moment, hand in hand in the dark, fearful of what a rash move might bring upon them. And in the beating stillness Ryder became conscious that the muffled, monotonous stamping of a horse is a gloomy, disheartening thing in the night, and that footsteps overhead are of all noises the most nervous and unsettling. What was behind those doors? Not a spark of light came from them. That was one comfort. The rooms, kitchen, service, storerooms, or whatever they were, appeared in the same blackness and oblivion. But any door might open on a roomful of sleeping gardeners and grooms. Life, and more than life, hung on the blind goddess. It was only an instant that they hesitated there, yet it appeared an eternity of indecision. Then nearer footsteps sounded, coming down that hall. No more wavering of the scales. Ryder turned to the door at his left, at the very end of the wall, beyond which came that far stamping, and wrenched it open, closing it swiftly behind him. He saw a light now, a mild yellow ray through an open door ahead, that vaguely illumined the strange old vehicles of the palace, and the stables were beyond. Someone else was beyond, too, in the stables, for that very instant he saw a black horse backed restively into sight, its tossing head evading the hands that were trying to bridle it. "'The fortieth door,' said Ryder to himself, with an involuntary thrust of humour. "'The door of the horse, the door of forbidden daring.' He knew now the vague associations that had stirred in him as he had stared blindly about that place of doors. But he had opened so many forbidden doors of late that this last was welcome as the supreme test. And nothing in the world could have been more welcome than a horse, a horse with a way out behind it. "'Stay back,' he said under his breath to Amy, and clasping his bit of iron he moved toward the door. He could see the attendant now, who was finishing his bridling, and it was Yusuf, the eunuch, so busy gentling and soothing the horse, that he cast only one glance in the direction of the sounds he heard, and that one glance misled him in its glimpse of the general's cloak. "'By your favour, but an instant,' he called out, and he is ready. "'Stand aside,' said Ryder very clearly, emerging from the shadows at the horse's heels. "'Out of the way with you. The horse is for me.' A moment Yusuf gaped. Then he dropped the bridle, and his hand went swiftly to the knife-hilt in his belt. "'Fool!' said Ryder contemptuously. "'Would you tempt fate? Do you think I am such that your knife could harm me? Must I prove to you again that walls are nothings? 
that I but let myself be taken to prove my powers? Ethiopians are superstitious, and Yusuf knew that his brick and mortar had been strong. Yet they have great trust in a crooked, short-bladed knife, and Yusuf did not relax his hold upon his, and for all that Ryder could see, there was no hesitation in the grinning ferocity of his black face. Yet his spring was an instant delayed, and in that instant Ryder spoke again. "'Look, now, at the wall behind you,' he said quickly. Yusuf looked, and as he turned his bullet head, Ryder jumped close and brought his iron down upon it, with a sickening force he thought scarcely short of murder. To his amazement the black did not fall, but staggered only, and Ryder had need to send the knife spinning from his grasp, and strike again before the eunuch's knees sagged and his huge bulk sank at Ryder's feet. This time Ryder took no chance with a shammed unconsciousness. He snatched down bits of leather from the wall, and bound the man's hands and feet in tight security, and seeing that he was breathing, although heavily, he thrust a gagging handkerchief into his mouth. Then he dragged the heavy body towards a pile of hay he saw in a vacant stall, and concealed it effectively, but not too smotheringly, although Yusuf, he felt, would be no grievous loss to society. Vaguely in the back of his consciousness he had been aware of the excited plunge of the horse, and then of a low, soothing murmur of speech, and now he turned to find Amy holding the bridle and stroking the quivering creature with gentle, fearless hands. "'Is he dead?' she asked quietly of the eunuch. "'Stunned,' said Ryder, meaning reassurement, and was startled by the passion of her cry. "'Oh, I could kill them all, all!' "'I will, if they try to stop us,' he promised grimly, forgetful of that oath to Aziza. Hastily he glanced about the stalls. There was no other horse there, only a pair of mild-eyed donkeys, and though there might conceivably be other horses behind other doors, there was no instant to spare in search. This luck was too prodigious to risk. The door to the street had already been unbolted, and now he threw it back, with a quick look into the dark emptiness of the narrow side street, and then, with a tight hold of the reins, he swung himself into the saddle, and Amy up into his arms, her head on his shoulder, her arms clasping him. It was a huge Bedouin saddle, with high arched back and curved pummel, and the slender player no more than filled it, making apparently no weight at all for the spirited beast which tore out of the stalls at the charging gallop beloved of eastern horsemen. For a moment Ryder felt wildly that he might meet the fate of the rash youth in his patron's story. He had never ridden a horse like this, which, like all high-mettled Arabs, resented the authority of any but his master, and though a good horseman, Ryder had all he could do to keep his seat and Amy in his arms. Around the corner of the lane the horse went racing, and down the dark, lebbock-lined avenue his flying feet struck back their sparks of fire. Across an open square he plunged, while irate camels screamed at him, and a harsh voice shouted back loud curses. It seemed to Ryder that other voices joined in, that there was a pursuit, an outcry, and then they were out upon an open road, wildly galloping, like a mad highwayman under a pale morning sky. End of chapter 20「Chapter Twenty One of the Fortieth Door. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Fortieth Door by Mary Hastings Bradley. Chapter Twenty One. Miss Jeffreys Makes a Call. That morning Miss Jeffreys ate two eggs. She ate them successively, with increasing deliberation 
and afterwards she lingered interminably over her toast and marmalade. Still Ryder made no appearance, and since the Arab waiter had informed her that he had not yet breakfasted, she concluded that he was not at the hotel, but had spent the night with some friend of his, probably that Andrew McLean, to whom he was always running off. Nor was he in to luncheon. That was rank extravagance, because he was paying at pension rates. His extravagance, however, was no affair of hers. Neither, she informed herself frigidly, was his appearance or his non-appearance. It was only rather dull of Jack to lose so many, well, opportunities. She was not going to be in Cairo forever. Not much longer, in fact. There were adages about gathering rosebuds while ye may, and making hay while the sun shone, that Jack Ryder would do well to observe. Other men did, reflected Jinny Jeffries, with a proud lift of her ruddy head. Only somehow the other men— Well, Jack was provokingly attractive. Only, of course, if he was going to rely upon his attraction, and not upon his attentions. Deliberately Miss Jeffries smiled upon a stalwart tourist from New York, and promised her society for a foursome at bridge in the hotel lounge that evening. Later, when Jack still failed to materialize, and behold her inaccessibility, the exhibition seemed hardly to have been worth while. And there were difficulties getting rid of the New Yorker the next day. He had ideas about excursions. It was during the forenoon of the next day that the first twinge of genuine worry shot across the sustained resentment which she was pleased to call her complete indifference. She recalled the vigour of Ryder's warnings about mentioning his adventure, and the grave dangers of disclosure, and she began to wonder. She wished, rather, that he had gone safely out of the house before she went away. Of course nothing could happen. He had done nothing to give himself away. He was simply a veiled shadow, moving humbly as befitted a lowly stranger among the high and hospitable surroundings. But still, it would have been better if he had gone. Those turbaned women had looked queerly at them when they were talking so long in the window. Perhaps it was not simply at the intimacy between a young American and a veiled Oriental. Perhaps their voices had been unguarded, or Jack's tones had awakened suspicion. Perhaps he had given himself away in his long talk with the bride. She remembered a Frenchwoman who had come to interrupt that talk, who had looked rather sharply at Jack, and that dreadful eunuch was always staring. She thought of a great many things now, more and more things, every minute. And still she told herself that she was absurd, that Jack would be the first to ridicule her alarm. He was probably enjoying himself, staying on with his friends, forgetting all about herself. Still, his room at the hotel had not been slept in for two nights now, nor had he called at the hotel, and he certainly didn't have an extensive supply of clothes and linen upon him, beneath the mantel. Particularly, she remembered that he had exhibited some funny black tennis shoes, which he had thought would go appropriately with a woman's robes. Absurd to think of him as spending two days in tennis shoes, and absurd to say that he would go to the shops and buy more, when he had plenty of footgear in his hotel room. Unless he wore McLean's. She had always regarded the unknown McLean as a most unnecessary absorbent of Jack Ryder's time and attention, and now that view was deeply reinforced. By noon she decided to do something. She would telephone that Andrew McLean and see if Jack had been there. The Agricultural Bank, that was the place. An obliging hotel clerk—clerks were always obliging to Miss Jeffries—gave her the number, and she slipped into the booth, feeling a ridiculous amount of excitement and suspense. She had never telephoned in Cairo, only been telephoned to, 
and she was not prepared for the fact that the telephone company was French. At the phone girl's numero, quel numero, s'il vous plaît, Jinny hastily choked back the English response and clutched violently at French numerals. Huit cent, no, quatre-vingt, un moment, she demanded desperately, and hanging up the receiver, sat down to write out her number in French correctly. And then she got the bank, and still, clinging to her French, she requested to speak to Monsieur McLean, and was informed that it was Monsieur McLean himself. Je suis, oh, how absurd, of course, you speak English, she exclaimed. This French telephone upset me. I wanted to speak to Mr. Ryder if he is there, or else leave a message for him, if you know when he will come in. Ryder? There was a faint intonation of surprise in the voice. I have no idea really when he'll be in, said McLean, but you may leave the message if you like. Hasn't he? Haven't you seen him for some time? stammered Jinny, feeling that McLean must be taking her for a pursuing adventuress. Well, not for some time. Her heart sank. Not, not for two days? It might be that, said the Scotchman cautiously. Two days, forty-eight hours, almost, since she had left him in that harem, and McLean had not seen him. Of course there might be other friends who had, and McLean might know of them. I'm afraid I'll have to see you, she said desperately. It's rather important about Jack Ryder, and if I could just talk with you a minute this afternoon— I have no appointment for three-fifteen, McLean told her concisely. Evidently he expected her to call at the bank. He was used to being called on. Shall I come? she began. I can see you at three-fifteen, McLean reassured her, and she repeated, three-fifteen, with an odd vibration in her voice. I wonder, she murmured, if I came at three-ten or three-twenty? But she didn't. She was humorously careful to make it exactly a quarter past the hour when she left her cab before McLean's official-looking residence and stepped into the tiled entrance. She had no very clear notion of Andrew McLean, except that he was, as Jack had said, scotch, single, and skeptical, that he was Jack's intimate friend and an official sort of banker. The word banker had unconsciously prepared her for stout dignity and middle age. She was not at all prepared for the lean, sandy-haired, rather abrupt young man who came forward from the depths of the gratefully cool reception-room, and after a nervous hand-clasp waved her to a chair. He was still holding her card, and as he glanced covertly at it she recalled that she had given him no name over the telephone, and that he must have known her only by the time of her appointment. Decidedly she must have made an odd impression. Well, he could see for himself now, she thought, a trifle defiantly. Certainly he was taking stock of her out of those shrewd, swift, grey eyes of his. He could see that she was, well, certainly a nice girl. As a matter of fact, McLean could see that she was considerably more, rather disconcertingly more. It was not often that such white-clad apparitions, piquant of face and coppery of hair, teased the eyes in his receiving-room. "'You wanted to see me?' he offered, mechanically. "'Perhaps you have heard Jack Ryder speak of me, of Jinny Jeffries?' began the girl, determined to put the affair on a sound social footing as soon as possible. McLean considered, and in honesty shook his head. He very seldom mentioned young ladies. Oh! Jinny tried not to appear dashed. We are very old friends in America, and, of course, I've seen a good deal of him since I've been in Cairo. In fact, he is stopping now at the same hotel with us, with my aunt and uncle and myself. McLean smiled. He said it was a tooth, he mentioned dryly. In Jinny's eyes a little flicker answered him but her words were ingenious. 
Oh, of course he has been having a time with the dentist. That's why he couldn't return to his camp. What I meant was that at the hotel we have been seeing him every day until— He has just disappeared since day before yesterday, and we—that is, I—am very much concerned about it. Disappeared? You mean he— Just disappeared, that's all. He hasn't been at the hotel. He hasn't been anywhere that I know of, and I haven't heard a word from him. So I telephoned you, and then I found he hadn't been here. McLean looked off into space. Eh, well, he'll turn up, he said comfortingly. Jack's erratic, you may say, in his comings and goings. He means nothing by it. I've known him to do the same to me. At any time now, you're likely to hear. Miss Jeffreys sat up a little straighter, and her cheeks burned with brighter warmth. It isn't just that I want to see him, Mr. McLean. She took quietly distinct pains to explain. It's because I am anxious. Not a need, not a need in the world. Jack knows his way about. He may have been called back to the diggings, you know. If I dug up some bit of porcelain there, or a few grains of corn, the boy would forget the sun was shining. Perhaps his caller's burnished hair had shaped that thought. Jack knows his way about, he repeated encouragingly, as one who demolishes the absurd fears of women and children. You don't quite understand. Jinny's tones were silken smooth. You see, I left him in rather unusual circumstances. It was a place where he had no business in the world to be. At McLean's unguardedly startled gaze, her humor overtook her wrath. Oh, it was quite all right for me, she replied mischievously to that look, only not for him. You see, he was masquerading. Again? thought McLean involuntarily. Lord, what a hand for the lassies that lad was. And he had thought him such an aloof one. Masquerading as a woman, so he could take me to a reception. Jinny began to falter. Just putting the escapade into words portrayed its less commendable features. It was a woman's reception, she began again, at a Turkish house, a marriage reception. She had certainly secured McLean's wholehearted attention. A marriage reception? A Turkish marriage reception? he said very sharply, and amazedly as his caller continued to pause. Do you mean to say that Jack Ryder went into a Turkish house dressed as a woman? There was a pronounced angularity of feature about the young Scotchman, which now took on a chiselled sternness. Swiftly, Jinny interposed. Oh, you mustn't blame him, Mr. McLean. You see, I wanted very much to go to a Turkish reception, and I didn't have the courage to go alone, or drag some other tourist as inexperienced as myself. And so Jack, why, there didn't seem any harm in his dressing up. Just for fun, you know. He put on a Turkish mantle and a veil up to his eyes, and he was sure he'd never be found out. I ought not to have let him, I know. It was my fault. She looked so flushed and innocent and distressed that McLean's chivalry rose swiftly to her need. Indeed, you mustn't blame yourself, Miss, Miss Jeffreys. You don't know Egypt, and Jack does. He knew that if he had been discovered, there would have been no help for him, and no questions asked afterwards and it might have been very dangerous for you. The blame is just his now, he said decisively, yet not without a certain weak-kneed sympathy with the culprit. For if the girl had looked like this, he could see that she would be a difficult little piece to withstand, though any man with an ounce of sense in his head would have behaved as a responsible protector, and not as a reckless schoolboy. What happened? he said quickly. Oh, nothing happened, nothing that I know of. We got along very well, I thought although now I remember that some people did stare. But I wasn't worried at the time. I thought it was just because I was an American, 
and he was apparently a Turkish woman. But there was no reason why an American might not get a Turkish woman to act as a guide, was there? And then Jack told me to go home first. He said it would be simpler that way, and that he would slip over to some friends or to some safe place and take his disguise off. He wore a gray suit beneath it, and the only funny thing was some black tennis shoes. So I left him, and he hasn't been back since. She added, as McLean was silent, he told me that he had some engagement for that evening, so I did not begin to worry until the next day. Now just how long ago was this? Two days ago, day before yesterday afternoon. She looked anxiously at McLean's face, and took alarm at his careful absence of expression. Oh, Mr. McLean, do you think? He brushed that aside. And where was it, this reception? At an old palace, forever away on the edge of the city. I don't remember the street. We drove, and I had the cab wait. But it belonged to a Turkish general, Hamdi Bey, she brought out triumphantly. General Hamdi Bey. McLean did not correct her idea of the title. His expression was more carefully noncommittal than ever, while behind its quiet guard his thoughts were breaking out like a revolution. Hamdi Bey, a wedding reception, the daughter of Tufik Pasha. In the secret depths of his soul he uttered profane and troubled words. That French girl again. Sir Ryder had not forgotten that affair, although he had kept silent about it of late. He had bided his time and taken that rash means of seeing the girl again, and he had involved this unknowing young American in a risk of scandal, and deceived her into believing herself responsible for this caprice, while all the time she had been a mere cloak, and it had been his own diabolical desire. Miss Jeffreys was surprised to see a sudden sorry softness dawn in the young man's look upon her, and she was surprised, too, at his next question. "'I wonder now, if you were the young lady who took him to a masquerade ball some time ago?' Lightly she acknowledged it. "'You'll think I'm always taking him to things,' she said brightly, but McLean's troubled gaze did not quicken with a smile. He was experiencing a vast compassion. She was so innocent, so unconscious of the quicksands about her. Probably she had never heard a breath of that first adventure. And it was this fair Christian creature whom Jack Ryder had abandoned for a veiled girl from a Turk's harem. McLean filled with cold, antagonistic wonder. He forgot the lovely image of the French miniature, and remembering Tufik's rounded eyes and olive features, he thought of the veiled girl, most illogically, for he knew that Tufik was not her father, as some bold-eyed, warm-skinned image of base allure. Sorrowfully he shook his head over his friend. He determined to protect him and to protect this girl's innocence of his behavior. He would help her to save him. She could do it yet, if only she did not learn the truth and turn from him. If ever she had been able to make Jack go to a masquerade, that cursed masquerade, she could work other, more beneficent miracles. So now he asked, very cautiously, his mind on divided paths, Do you say there was nothing to draw suspicion? He did not talk to anyone, the guests or the bride? Oh, yes, he did talk to the bride, said Miss Jeffreys, with such utter unconsciousness that McLean's heart hardened against the renegade. He talked quite a while to her, she said. Did you notice anything? Oh, I couldn't hear what he said. He was the last in line, and he stayed for some time. He said afterward that it was all right. She was very nice to him, said Jinny earnestly, producing every scrap of incident for McLean's judgment. She showed him some of her presents, something about her neck. In mid-speech, McLean changed a startled God to good. She wasn't suspicious then, he said weakly. Not as far as I could see. 
Oh, nothing seemed to be wrong. But I did feel uneasy until I got away, and then Jack hasn't come back. Again she looked at the young Scotchman for confirmation of her fear, and again she saw that careful, expressionless calm. It's no need for alarm, he told her slowly. Since nothing went wrong, I see no reason why Jack couldn't have walked out of that reception, if we only knew where he was going later. Yes, something might have happened later, Jinny took up. I thought of that. He might have wanted some more fun and felt more reckless. Oh, I am worried, she confessed, her gray eyes very round and childlike. And if anything had happened, she would always blame herself, thought McLean, ironically. The unthinking deviltry of the young scoundrel. When he found him, he'd have a few things to say. That's why I came to you, Jinny went on. I hesitated, for he had warned me so against telling anyone, but no one else knows. And no one must know, McLean assured her crisply. I dare say, it's a mare's nest, and Jack will be found safe and sound at his diggings, or off on a lark with some friend or other. But it's well to make sure, and you did quite right in coming to me. Jinny thought she had done quite right, too. There was a satisfying strength about McLean. She resented a trifle his masculine way of trying to keep the dark side from her. She was not greatly misled by that untroubled look of his, and yet she was unconsciously reassured by it. And although he refused to be stampeded by alarm, he was not incredulous of it, for his manner was frankly grave. "'I'll send out at once,' he said decisively, "'and see if I can pick up any gossip of that reception.' I've a very clever clerk with brothers in the bazaars, who's a perfect wireless for information. He has told me the night before a man was to be murdered. He paused, reflecting that that was not a happy suggestion. Then I'll send out to Jock's Diggins. That express doesn't stop to-night, but I'll find a way, and I'll let you know as soon as I can. You're very kind, said Jinny gratefully. His confident manner brought her a light-hearted sensation of difficulties already solved. Jack was as good as found, she felt in swift reaction. If he was in any trouble, this forceful young man would settle it. But probably he wasn't in any trouble. Probably he was just at his diggings, rushing off from her in the exasperating way he seemed to do whenever they were getting on particularly well. She remembered how he had bolted from that masquerade which had begun so happily. He had said he was ill, but she had never completely slain the suspicion that his illness sprang from ennui and disinclination. She rose. I mustn't take any more of your time, Mr. McLean, and you probably have a 4.15 engagement. Eh? No, I have not. Seriously, he assured her. You are quite the last one I took on, the last before tea. He paused, confused, with a strange suggestion. Tea. His servant did it rather well, and it was time— Usually he had it in the garden. It was a charming garden, full of roses, with a nice view of the citadel, and his strange suggestion expanded with a rosy vision of Jinny among the roses, beside his wicker table. Would she possibly care to? He struggled with his idea and with his shyness. And then the sense that it wasn't quite decent, somehow, to be offering tea to this girl, whom anxiety for Ryder's unknown lot had brought to him, overcame that unwanted impulse. He dismissed the idea, and like all shy men he was oddly relieved at the passing of the necessity for initiative, even while he felt his mild hope's expiring pang. He stepped before her to open the doors to which she was now taking herself. In the entrance he saw his clerk, the clever one, going out, and excusing himself he went forward to detain the man. For a moment there ensued a low-toned colloquy. 
Then the clerk, a dark brown, keen-featured fellow in European clothes, with a red fez, began to relate something. When McLean turned back to Jinny Jeffries, she saw that his look was sharply altered. There was a transfixed air about him, and when he spoke his voice told her that he had had a shock. "'My man tells me,' he said, "'that Hamdi Bay's bride is dead. He buried her yesterday.' End of chapter 21brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.